My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But you still live. You know, the spirit is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Well, welcome everybody to our second season of It Still Lives. Hard to believe we've already wrapped up our first season. I'm Cammie and I'm here with TJ and we are your hosts. Happy New Year. <laughs> we hope everybody's year is off to a great start. <laughs> Ours certainly is. Definitely hit the ground running here at Foxfire with lots of awesome projects um, that we're starting for this upcoming year. But we just want to say thanks to all of you guys for a really great year. Our first um, year of a podcast. We weren't really sure how things were going to go. Um, but since March of 2019, we've released 15 episodes with over 9,500 downloads. And we we're just looking at the statistics this morning. And yep. those downloads are all across the world. So yep. thank you so much for all of your support. And please keep listening. And please join in the conversation. We want to hear from you guys. We want to hear about what you guys are interested in, um, what we're doing right, even what we're doing wrong. So yep. <laughs> reach out to us on Twitter at it still lives one or um, shoot us an email at it still lives at foxfire.org. Yeah, and it's, we're really excited to be back. And as Cammie said, we've got a, a big year coming up and, and we're looking forward to a lot more episodes of um, It Still Lives. We've got some good things uh, in the queue. Yeah, I'm pretty excited for some of the episodes. I am year. too. Um, so that, that'll be great. And, you know, tell your friends. Um, today, we're going to start off on a little bit more of a dismal topic, I would say. Honestly, when TJ first presented <laughs> this idea to me, it was a hard no, but... Um, I've always liked, you know, this now <laughs> is the winter of our discontent. <laughs> January just feels like the winter of our discontent. Yeah, it's starting to feel very fitting, and it actually, um, the more I started researching it, it got pretty interesting. So, mm -hmm. um, we're going to talk about the 1918 flu epidemic in honor Yay. of flu season. So... <laughs> As hopefully most of you know, the flu epidemic of 1918 was a global pandemic, and it happened right at the end of World War One, and it was pretty devastating. It's estimated to have killed about 50 million people. Um, about 675,000 of these people were in the U.S., um, so it in infected a fifth of the global population, which is just crazy. I mean, it was way worse than the bubonic plague, and it's um, certainly nothing like we've ever seen before or since. The reason we want to bring this up is it's a really great example of community support and building relationships within a community and how those relationships function to kind of help and support each other. It's a, it's a really great example of, of a community coming together. Um, and going above and beyond, reading through these stories, and, and a lot of this is going to be appearing, or a lot of these interviews, that all the interviews that are featured in this episode and more uh, are featured in the new uh, Foxfire story, uh, which is the book coming out April 28th. Um, but just reading through these, uh, these stories and listening to the audio, talking also to our curator, Barry Stiles, he had, he had um, some good remembrances of... Um, interviews that he had heard about this period in time. 
And it's just really a testament to the strength of community and something that we'd like to remind folks of um, in Southern Appalachia, but everywhere too, is, you know, just the importance of having that, that strong community. And it's something that I always look to, you know, I'd like to, this, to see this happen again uh, across the globe, you know, um, neighbors really caring for neighbors and, and being there in Without support of flu. one another. Without the flu. Yeah. Just like, we Without don't the devastating impact. Yeah. I don't want to see the, the flu happen part. again. Let me, let me, let me reel that back a little bit. Um, but just seeing that kind of community, that turn of support for, for neighbors, it's something that I, I've seen in other communities outside of Southern Appalachia, certainly when you're dealing with small rural communities, isolated communities. I saw this in Southwest Louisiana, um, but just the strength and the bonds between people, because, you know, in, in tight knit communities, you do rely on one another for, in a lot of different ways. Um, and having that support um, of your neighbors is really important and getting to know your neighbors is really important. Um, and it's something that unfortunately we see less and less of with, you know, new ways of communication. We're building, you know, new ideas of community through social media and through other things. But I, I don't know that it's been able to replicate um, some of the things that we see from the early part of the 20th century up through the, you know, the mid to, to late 20th century, uh, especially in this region. So uh, a lot of um, really... Um, Important stories came out of this time period. Um, a lot of just beautiful moments between humans <laughs> um, that you know really just brighten my heart. People, um, one one story that's not in, in in the interviews that we have here, but that that Barry brought up to me was uh, Bill Lamb, um, who was a resident of the northern part of our county, uh, and and his relationship to another family, the Nortons, uh, Margaret Norton. You may have uh, recognized from some previous episodes. Um, but Margaret Norton talking about how uh, her family got sick. It was Bill Lamb who came and nursed them um, to health, um, took care of their chores, made sure that they had fresh water, made sure they had a fire in the in their in their stove or in the fireplace, uh, made sure they had some broth to eat. They were hydrated, um, cleaned their bed linens. I mean, this man did all sorts of things for them, and they weren't the only family that Mr. Lamb was was helping. Um, and there's there's examples of that throughout these interviews of different neighbors working with one another, helping one another. You know, as Kami said, you know, one fifth <coughs> uh, the, of the population was affected um, here in Raven County. You know, it was like if you were in a room of four people, three of them may have had it or, or four of them may have had it, whatever. Um, and so the one person that didn't have it was was charged with with helping people out. So. Um, really, really important lessons to be learned here. One thing that was really interesting when I was doing the research is that one of the unique aspects of this flu is that it affected mostly people between the ages of 20 and 40. That was surprising to me. Yeah, yeah. which, you know, it's very unusual for the flu to affect kind of this, I don't know, what we call more of like a healthy age Your range. prime age, right? Yeah. Yeah, like when we're at our, our, our top condition. And so... You know, that's why it was even more important that people like Bill Lamb were able to take on helping other people if he was healthy when others were not. Because, um, you know, the, a lot of the caretakers for the families, you know, the parents especially, they were coming down with it at the same time their children were. And so if you have no caretaker in the family, that led to really high mortality rates because there really wasn't anybody to take care of the children and so they would die first and then usually the parents would be soon after unfortunately um and actually the cdc in 2005 <laughs> this really shocked me um 
hired a microbiologist to recreate the 1918 influenza virus. So there were some scientists who, as early as I think the 1940s or 1950s, had gone on expeditions um, to basically recover infected cells um, from people who perished from the flu in order to recreate the virus. Um, and they weren't successful until they extracted some lung tissue from a soldier who died at Fort Jackson, um, South Carolina. And from that, they were able to sequence the RNA and then using reverse genetics, um, recreate the flu virus. That's so scary. Yeah, there's a really interesting <laughs> article on this on it on the CDC's webpage, and we'll probably link that through our blog if you're interested in learning more. And they, they certainly took, you know, every possible precaution um, that they could to ensure that no harm would come from it. But they found some really interesting stuff. And, um, you know, they already knew that the flu was very dangerous and very unusual, but they were able to show that it was, um, in some cases, a hundred times, uh, more aggressive than some other flu viruses that they used. Um, and this was all done in mice studies. Um, and then they also were able to show that it did, did sort of manifest into pneumonia, which is you know, when you hear these interviews, a lot of people talk about the symptoms and talk about how the doctors just didn't know what it was. And there were several people who were said to have died from pneumonia. I've, I've never really been interested in epidemiology until until now. <laughs> so my friend who is an epidemiologist, I hope she's proud of me. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, that was probably enough science for me for the year. Um, but it was really interesting. But to get on the more historical side... We nowadays refer to this as the Spanish flu, um, and I thought this was because it originated in France with the end of the war, and then it maybe migrated into the Iberian Peninsula, um, which was partially true, but Spain was neutral during World War I, mm. and their media censorship rules kept them from reporting on the war, so their media was freed up to report on the flu. And so it was Spanish media that first began publishing on the flu. But they did think that it came from France, obviously, because there were a lot of people in very confined, tight spaces without proper sanitation. And so it spread more rapidly. Um, but more recent evidence suggests that it possibly arose in China. Um, but this is kind of unsupported. But in one of our interviews from Lawton Brooks, you'll hear that he also talks about it originating in Asia. Um, so kind of interesting. I mean, you know, and during that time too, a lot of people are moving freely across the globe, soldiers mostly being transported from this point to that point. So it's easy to see how this could spread fairly quickly just because of the yeah. contact between individuals from all sorts of places. Um, and as, as you mentioned too, just the, you know, the nature of the trench warfare in France and world war one, uh, confined spaces, you know, lots of people crammed into small spaces. Um, it's easy to see how this this was able to spread pretty quickly. And then, you know, you mentioned the the effects of it, and we'll hear this from Lawton, and it was something that when I was doing research in the book, he's my first interview uh, in the section of the of the book about, about the flu. The way that it, the onset of it is so sudden. Yeah, you'll you'll hear him multiple times snap his fingers. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, talk about he felt like he got shot in the knees. He was out hunting uh, with a friend and thought the kid had shot him, you know, yeah. on accident or something because his knees just went out from him, and he couldn't he couldn't move. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just you know crippled him. 
Um, and a lot of, you'll hear a lot of people talk about just the, the quick onset and debilitating their ability just to, just to function, just to sit up. Mm-hmm. Um, scary stuff. Yeah, very scary. Um, so on that pleasant <laughs> note, <laughs> um, we're going to start our interviews. And the first comes from Ethel Korn. The audio is a little bit grainy, and I do apologize for that. Um, but she does remember the impact of it. Um, and so we're going to have her share that with you now. To ask you if you knew anything about the flu epidemic. Um, yeah, I think it was in 1918, something like that. Well, I don't remember what year it was. The first flu epidemic hit. But it was bad for it was something the doctors know nothing about. They called it an influenza then. And it killed just about everybody. Not as far as I can take it, it was for several years before doctors got up on it to know anything about it. Out of treated? Yeah. They just, they just didn't know what to do for it. There was a lot of people died for it, from it. More of them died than got over it. Not so awful much through here as it was around and surrounding places. But nearly everybody that had it through this country. It's just about, say, a good third of them died. Because we didn't have uh, nothing on the just plain old country doctors. In fact, we didn't have but three doctors in here. Dr. Neville, yeah. and Dr. Dover, and Dr. Green. That was all the doctors they was. They stood Clayton and one of them. But now that, that I've told you as much as I can about it because it was a thing that just was not understood. You know, I was just a child at the time that uh, flu epidemic came. So you don't remember much? No, because there wasn't there wasn't much that the doctors even know about. I wonder what they did. Did they use home remedies? Yeah, they uh, give medicine, but now I can't tell you what kind of medicine <laughs> they give for. Okay, so our second clip is a little bit longer, and this is the one from Lawton Brooks, and he really goes into detail. He has very detailed memories of it happening, and his whole family got sick from it. And they didn't really have any way of treating this. No, because the doctors didn't know what it was, and there was, you know, no sense, really, of what a virus was. Nope. I mean, penicillin didn't come out till what, the 20s? Right. So they really didn't have anything you know, to help treat it. They did have um, aspirin to help with the pain. That was it. it. That, that was about yeah, it. The, it. The most a doctor could do was administer or give them some aspirin. Yeah. So they really did rely on some home remedies, but again, that was for relief and not not mm-hmm. to treat the virus itself. Um, you know, and there also at this time was no coordinated response to an no. epidemic. I mean, no. they had no, I mean, we the country, have things like the, the CDC, counties, yeah, right. there was no organized response to something like this in order to contain it. So, so they really did just rely on one another yeah. and, and, and the the kindness of, of their neighbors, um, which is really remarkable that, that the world, <laughs> but certainly, uh, you know, this, this area of the world was able yeah. to pull through. And Lawton talks about how there was a boy that worked for them, and yeah. he was pretty much the reason they were able to survive, and how yeah. much that boy helps them, but also families around them, too. So. Yeah. People get sick around us. My daddy said, all right now, boys, you can go up. Is it corn-gathering time? 
Mm-hmm. They tell you go down and hook up that wagon. Tell you boys going get a corn plant man today. So we take off. We take off, get the corn all day, put it right down the cliff. Well, if any bus is or anything, it come time to do a thing. They come down that the same way. And if anybody got sick, we'd always go and see if he had plenty of wood. But anything on the outside that had to be done, all he had to do was just let us know what it was to be done, and it was done. I guarantee you it was done, because there's plenty of people standing out ready to do it any time. It wasn't like it is now. God, yeah. I'll never forget that, sister. I had that. That was the fastest flu you ever hear tell of here. Me and another one of my best friends was a rabbit hunter. Well, my daddy, he was down with it. And my brother, he was down with it. Me and my mother wasn't down. My stepmother, I mean. My mother died when I was. 15 years. Me and my stepmother, we hadn't got out. And me and this boy, we had rabbit hunt. And I walked two or three steps. And they wouldn't have mad at me when I got up here. We walked two or three steps and something hit me and this knee and this and right here. And I swear, I thought he shot me and I fell. And he come running out there and I said, Grayson, I said, what in the world did you shoot me for? He said, I didn't shoot you. Well, I said, there's something happened to my knees. I believe he didn't. I commit pulling my britches up the sea. I wasn't. Well, by that time then, I just knocked out. Well, it scared him. He carried me a piece, and he couldn't carry me all the way, and he laid down the gun, and me, and run down over there. Got some of the folks over there to come and get me. Mm-hmm. Took me on the house, and I got the house. My nose commenced bleeding. Well, we had a telephone in there, and that's when the telephones first began to come around. We had one in, and the doctor had me. Called him, he happened to be at the house. He said, I'll be there just in a minute. Well, sure enough, he didn't take time to ride his horse around. He just took a trail, come out across the hill, walking. Quick as he come in, I said, he's got the flu. Said, he got that bite and hateful flu. And he come out give me medicine. And I didn't know nothing, and my nose like to bled me to death. They just have to change pillars one after another. Just kept gushing out and get it stopped for a few minutes, and Jerry come again. My temperature was so high, and uh, my daddy, he lost his voice when he had it for 18 straight months. Now, his voice left him one night. He talked just as good as I could. One night, and he went to bed. He got up the next morning, couldn't speak above a whisper. And for 18 months, he didn't speak above a whisper. And one morning, he got up talking as good as he ever did. For 18 straight months. And the doctor sent him the different doctor to see what took his voice. Nobody could have, they examined him. Say, there's nothing the matter with John, he's just as stout a man as ever you see. And, uh, and this is from the flu? Called from that flu. And you know, we didn't know what they get scared of when he got up one morning talking. We'd used him a whisper all the time. And for 18 straight months, and he got up one morning talking good as he ever did. And his voice never did leave him no more. Never did leave no more, and he left to be 90 years before my told. And he never did leave him no more, but it left him. That flu hit him some way or another and left him in that chick. And the doctors wanted to find out what it was. He worked all the time. He wasn't sick. He got on the flu. He was well as he ever was, but he couldn't talk. 
It just took him more. And he kept him that way for 18 straight months. And he got up one morning talking to the others. And they were burying him two at a time, three at a time. The graveyard, they stayed in the graveyard and working continually every day. There's somebody digging graves. Why they just, they just wipe them out? I was down there. I went to town, come back by the graveyard, and there's two fellas there I know. And I stopped talking to them, digging a grave. And here come a man running up on a mule and says, "Double it, said his brother's dead down there. Said just the double it, burn both the same grave." And they just died. Oh, I don't know how many out of the family have died. They just died like hogs with a collar, just like a disease come through, and the doctor didn't have no medicine, nothing for it. And if you just started up and could live through it, you live through it. If you didn't, you just died with it. That's all. It killed my brother. How long did the whole thing last? Well, let's see. I don't know exactly how long it lasted, but it didn't last too long. Mm -hmm. It was about this time of year, I think, when, when it was. Mm -hmm. And we had it so bad. You'd feel as good as you did right now, and that thing would hit you so darn quick, you'd think somebody knocked you in the head. You don't know it. Just, just like that when it hit you. That's the way it done everybody. Just hit them. They claim it it come from across the one. Let's see, where was it? Asia. Asia, yeah, Asia attic flew. I believe yeah. they called it Asia attic, Asia attic, or something like that was the name of it. They called it. That's what they named it anyway. Mm -hmm. But now let me tell you something, girl. After the flu ever been here, I've had the flu since, and I've seen people with flu since, but I've never seen no flu like that. And I hope I've never seen them more like. It. Because I tell you, when you took it, if you wasn't extra stout. You just a dead person. Now that's all it was. Well, do you think that was because you know the, the people had never had it before, and that was? I have an idea. What? Well, and they didn't have no medicine right. to stop that miserable pain. I'ma tell you, it was awful. It hit you in the legs, and you'd think somebody cut your leg off. Oh, your leg is so bad you just couldn't stand. Most people killed ever I know of. Just a digging grave, just one right after another, one right after another. Right. It really did slay the people. Do you know how uh, widespread it was? No, I sure don't. I don't know how widespread it was, but it's pretty widespread. That flu was, because it killed lots and lots of folks. Of course, now then, it wouldn't be so bad because they've got hospitals they take you to. Back then, people didn't have no place to take you. If you lived in an old open house, you just had to stay out of that old open house. There wasn't nothing you could do. No place for you to go. You just stayed out. If you could get a doctor while you got him, if you couldn't get him, you couldn't. Well, during this flu, people helped each other a lot, now, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they'd go in and help each other. And some of if it had been him, we'd have died because we couldn't hand each other a drink. And we was too crazy anyway. We wouldn't know anything about it. You was crazy with it. You didn't know what was going on. That didn't help you a bit in the God's world. There's one old boy that's staying out of our house and boarding there. And he went through it all and never did take it and stayed there and cooked and waited on us. And, and he waited on us. And there's two more families right there next to us. He waited on them and us too. And that keeps us going around and whistling all the time. Okay, and our final clip comes from Harriet Eccles. What's interesting about Harriet's story um, that she really shed some light on is the experience of the doctor. Mm -hmm. So there were only a few doctors. I think Ethel Korn mentions this. There's only like three doctors in the area. And um, one of those is Dr. Neville, who comes up a lot in Foxfire oral histories. So, And she also um, briefly mentions sort of uh, the experience in the, in the, uh, the African-American community. Um, like, you know, those communities were, uh, not as, um, 
they didn't interact as much as 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 people do today. Uh, there was some separation there, but she did note that you know a lot of them, you know, these folks were also pulling together and having to help one another out. But yeah, the communities, the two communities, really come together. So this is a great example of how they they broke down some of those barriers and were able to um, cooperate in order to work for the benefit of each other. The other thing to remember, and she she alludes to this as well, is that this was going on during the winter, and the weather was awful. Yeah. Uh, they were dealing with frozen roads, um, a lot of wet, uh, either snow, ice, or rain. Um, it was it was a very you know which makes it harder to get somebody well if it's freezing cold outside. So part of the work that people had to do that were helping folks out was keeping the fires going, keeping people warm, keeping blankets on them, uh, making sure that they weren't also um, being exposed to, you know, suffering from exposure, being exposed to the elements, dealing with extreme cold temperatures and, and that sort of thing. So uh, it was really kind of the perfect storm, I hate using that term, but it was, of uh, you know, this pandemic, um, lack of resources, n no central agency able to help out, doctors really not understanding what the, what, you know, what was happening, uh, and then this weather issue. Um, yeah. So it was just, uh, yeah, really bad time. Yes. But on the flip side, as Lawton noted, it was almost better that it was in the winter because they weren't, you know, they didn't lose their crops. Crops, right. I mean, yeah. had they lost their crops, there would have been more deaths from famine, I'm sure, yeah. the following winter. Uh, a couple of other girls are, look, are finding all kinds of stories about the old flu epidemic back in 1918. Uh, do you remember that? We were in that, yes, we was, and we were sick. And you know, there where we lived, my first baby was just a little fella. Uh, we was born in 17, and he was born in October of 18. And we had moved to a different place. You know, where you rent land and, and get close to your job, you move on to get near your work. And we had rented another farm, and my husband was working at the Shingle Hill. And that flu epidemic hit, and I'm telling you, there were so many sick people, there wasn't enough people well. Even our undertaker, the funeral, that took care of the funeral home, died. They was two together and they both got sick and Mr. Lazenby died and Mr. Dunaway finally got well but he was for months. And that, you talk about sick. Did anybody in your family get it? Yes, me, we all had it. And my little baby laid there for days and the doctors couldn't get to us. The weather was bad and there was just so many sick people and during the war, you see, and the doctors uh, was all in service. Mm -hmm. And we just had one doctor there taking them. And he went day and night till he liked to die. And there wasn't enough people to dig graves and bury the dead. The Negroes come in and helped, and there was so many of them that died. And sometimes there'd be six and eight funerals in one day. We talked a lot about Clayton. He said sometimes they'd be digging a grave, and said some one place they were digging a grave, and while they were digging it, the man drove up and told them to make it a double grave because the guy's brother just died or something. Yeah, well, that's the way it was. And it, people was just sick so long with it. And then they didn't have shots to give you like they do now, you know, and, and they just had to work and do with what they had to do. And I know there was so many people sick the night my baby was born, and the doctor came and he said, well, if I'm not needed right now, I said, I've got to rest a little while. 
And so my husband's mother was there and his aunt. And my mother was sick and she couldn't come to help us out. And so he looked after me and everything. He said, oh no, it'll be on toward morning, maybe tomorrow before I'm needed. I thought, oh my God, how can I stay <laughs> wait till tomorrow? But he went to bed and, and the baby was born something after 12 o'clock, about 1, 1 something like that. But anyway, he said that he had been to the convict camp and he said there's just so many people sick. I've not had a, a night's sleep in, since it started down. He said, really, it's just day and night. And so he laid down, he got several hours rest and then got up and after the baby was born and everything, everybody went home. Miss Ackles fixed her and my husband's breakfast. And then she went home. And you know, people were so sick and they didn't have medicine. And uh, where that flu went into pneumonia, that's where so many people died. We hope you've at least learned something from this episode. <laughs> We do apologize for the rather despairing nature of the material, but um, I hope you all did find it somewhat interesting as we did. Well, and too, you know, I want to highlight something about, you know, the relevance of this today is that, you know, part of the part of what our work is doing is elevating um, the challenges of this region. Um, we look at the past a lot of times because we're pulling stuff from the archives, but we want to remind folks too that in Southern Appalachia and, and most in a lot of rural America, there are still um, issues surrounding accessibility to, to health care. Um, you know, people even in this county, some you know live 30 minutes away from the nearest uh, health care facility in the healthcare facilities that a lot of places like, you know, where we live and, and other rural areas have are limited. So you may be even further away from um, the healthcare that you need in, in case of an emergency a situation. A lot of times people here have to be life flighted to another hospital that's an hour down the road. Um, so, you know, this, this is not, this challenge that these folks faced in 1918, we can look at them like, man, that's terrible. But honestly, if something like this happened again, um, what would the response be? Would we have the tools to really do any better um, than folks had, you know, doing in 1918? I like to think so. You know, we have other organizations in place like the Red Cross and FEMA and places and, and organizations like that and agencies like that. But the reality is still pretty stark for, for Southern Appalachia when it comes to health care and a lot of rural America. So, um, you know, hope that this... The, you know, my my thinking is that something like this too illuminates that you know that we're we're still um, for as much as we've advanced and evolved, uh, we're still dealing with a lot of the same issues. Um, so yeah, that's a great point. So not to bring you right on down. Next month is going to be, excuse me, a lot cheerier. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Perhaps. Maybe. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, so. <laughs> We are going to be having a special guest next month for our um, podcast, and we're actually going to be doing, again, another special series, kind of like what we did in 
October where we had um, short episodes each week. So please stay tuned um, and download the first episode of that series on the very first Tuesday of February. And then each Tuesday will follow with another shorter episode. So um, again, always feel free to reach out to us. And thank you again for such a wonderful 2019. And we look forward to bringing you um, many, many more episodes in 2020. Have a great one. See you next time. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>